This is an ABC podcast. All good things must come to an end. Uh, All bad things too, really, for that matter. Either way, this is the end of our Ramadan series, uh, the final episode in the stretch of four that we're doing. Back to normal programming next week. Um, And uh, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host here on The Minefield. Scott, I I would say, did this happen last year as well, where we sort of started our Ramadan series with things that you might, perhaps to the untrained eye, think were were tangential and then ended up being really quite literal. Mm. Where we mm. did fasting, I think. Yes, yes, we did. Was it at the end? Was it last year? Anyway. Yeah, it was last year. I think we've done the same kind of thing this year, haven't we? We've we've started with things that, are de- well, they're actually central to those who are sort of more familiar with the the traditions of Ramadan and the, the, the purpose and meaning of it. But they're tangential, I think, to those who are more casual observers. Mm. You can't miss the connection this time. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, we were discussing last week that I don't think we've ever done a series that has been so interconnected as this one. Each episode, I feel, each discussion, we've built upon the one that's gone before, and each episode that we've done has anticipated in some important way, I think, what it is we're going to pick up the following week. There's something interesting, though, about this topic. So we, for those who maybe have lost track, the theme of the series is purification in the moral life. One of the reasons that I was so thrilled when you leapt at the idea of making purification central, because purification is not a popular term to use within moral philosophy, much less in common life. We don't tend to think of pollutants of the soul, for instance, or of corruptions of the eyes, or of debasements of language, or of corrupted aesthetics, for instance. We, we tend not to talk that way. Um, and I think it's partly because we've also had lots and lots and lots of experiences of what happens when a group of people, for instance, are signaled, are indicated, are marked out as being impure or corrupt. So we, we tend not mm. to like to deal with the language of purification of impurity, uh, of pure, of ins and outs, of holiness, of sanctity, of corruption, and, and so on. And yet, the language of purity, of purification, of assent, of, uh, of disciplining, of chastening, this language is all inseparable from so much moral philosophy, from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Seneca, right through the medieval traditions, right into our time, people like Simone Weil, Iris Murdoch, Stanley Cavell, Wittgenstein. I mean, the language is all there. So the overarching theme has been purification and whether it makes sense within the way that we think about the moral life, to think about purifying the ways that we interact with the world. So the first one was the purification of desire. Uh, not just uh, uh, not just constraining or disciplining or chastening what we want, but also whether it makes sense to shift the object of our desiring attention onto what is good, what is worthy of that desire. Uh, it also has to do, I think that first conversation had a whole lot to do with the body's comportment to the world and the relationship between the body and our underlying uh, motives and emotions, the soul even. We talked about the disciplining or the chastening of language, being careful about the words that we use, the words that we use and direct towards others, but also the extent to which vast periods of silence ought to surround the words that we use. Last week, we discussed the purification or the chastening, the disciplining of the eyes Uh, whether we are increasingly incapable of recognizing the truly beautiful because our eyes have become so calloused, so papered over, so obscured by the constant taking in of images, and whether, again, the language of fasting makes sense when it comes to what it is we see, whether we need to cleanse our vision 
by limiting the things that we view rather than uh, simply allowing the cascade of images that constantly accosts us uh, to keep going. Now, you're right. We are becoming very, very, very literal. Uh, um, most people associate Ramadan with going without food and drink during daylight hours. And we're talking about the ethics of eating. Or maybe is it better to say, well, the ethics of hunger? Is that... Yeah, or maybe the virtue of hunger. The virtue of hunger? Okay. Uh, so can I just be clear at the outset what I don't want this to be? Yes. And uh, apologies if this is exactly what you have in mind. I don't want this to be a discussion of fasting. No, that's right. Because, and I, I there's an ABC newsletter thing and each of us wrote something and I, I made this point in a thing I wrote for it. And I, the thing about fasting is the way that people think about it is, I think, just generally people think about it, is it's kind of like a series of intervals in between stuffing your face. <laughs> so... So it's like an endurance test, and then at the end of it, you get the prize, you get the lolly, right? So, you, and oh, I love it. a that's not what it is, no, as I think really we've, we've yeah. sort of expanded yeah. expanded upon the series. But but b this is really like it's about the inculcation of an ethic, mm -hmm. right? And in some ways, a proof of concept that you can be the master of your own desires rather than the slave of them. Right? And you can direct those desires towards that, which is good. Um, we've discussed that. But the other element of, of it, and what I really wanted to do today is what's, what's important is the relationship we might have to food or the relationship, the virtues of hunger, whatever it is we want to talk about, outside of a regimen of fasting. Mm, that's right. So where there aren't rules in place or something like a kind of stricture whereby here is the period where you donate and here is the period where you just eat as much as you possibly can, right? That that's not what we're... I think we're here wanting to talk about. In the same way that fasting is something that's meant to inculcate an ethos, I think we want to talk about that ethos. Yes. So what happens outside of those periods that becomes habituated, that becomes part of your overall moral disposition or formation? That's right. Can I take a step back, though? Yes. Because the need for the inculcation of that kind of ethos only makes sense if the relative danger or the degree of the threat to neglecting that ethos is most clearly kept in mind. So one of the things that strikes me is we both wanted to do eating as the last episode, kind of, you know, things get sort of fuzzy or esoteric. I, mean, I don't think we're ever fuzzy and esoteric, but, you know, maybe a uh, little... I think there'd be a few people who'd say... Well, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then they just get super kind of concrete and tangible towards the end. But, you know, if we were doing this right, which is not to say that what we've done over the last month is wrong, but if we were following the logic of the ancients, let me put it that way, we would have done hunger first. Because, uh, for instance, in the great treatise by Al-Ghazali, uh, the breaking of the two desires. I mean, he says very, very clearly, the greatest moral vice which a man may harbor is the desire of the stomach. That there's something about the craving of the stomach and the disposition that that craving creates towards the rest of the world that Al-Ghazali regarded as being fundamental and fundamentally corrupting. So what that means is if you get that wrong, you get so very much in the moral life wrong. Conversely, if you get that right, if you kind of tame that particular craving, then all sorts of things can follow from that. It's really interesting to me that you've got Al-Ghazali on the one hand, and then you've got Simone Weil on the other, who said something remarkably similar, but in a register that I, I guess I recognize a little bit more clearly. Um, she said that uh, it may well be that vice, depravity, cruelty are nearly always in their essence attempts to eat beauty. Mm. It's a shocking thing to say, but what she means by that, and this I think takes us back to our conversation last week about the eyes, is that there is a reality in the world of things that exist and that don't exist for our sake. The overwhelming human disposition is 
towards acquisitiveness. Making things, just to put it as bluntly as I can, to making things essentially about us. The call of beauty is for us to stop, for us to be still, for us to move to the side and simply attend, not to consume, not to grasp, but to allow that thing which need not exist but does and is beautiful for doing so, to allow that thing that is beautiful to exist without us having to impose ourselves upon it or to consume it in turn. I mean, it's interesting to me that Simone Weil uses that as the matrix, the metric for human relationships as well. She defines justice, for instance, as the capacity of two persons to stand before one another equal. She says that equality is justice, whereas every other form of relationship is acquisitiveness, is consumptiveness, is desire and possession, and so on. And it just strikes me that these two very, very, very different thinkers, you've got Simone Weil on the one hand, you've got Al-Ghazali on the other, identify consumption or the orientation of the self towards the world as being one of acquisitiveness. They see that as being in some way fundamental about the way in which the moral life can go wrong. Whereas being able to see the world in its measure, being willing to regard the higher pleasures, the greater demands, the what Stanley Cavell would call the perfectionist moments in the moral life as being the things that we prepare ourselves for and that we therefore see our orientation towards food not as the first step in this chain of consumptiveness that then leads us out and out and out to more and more things we consume and possess but rather that sees that fundamental orientation towards food as the first step that the human life takes to regard, to attend to, but not simply to reach out and grasp and possess and fill mm. and want and mm. need. Yeah, I think that's a really, um, a really powerful insight, actually. And there's something about food as the starting point, because there's something about hunger and the satiation of hunger as the elemental desire. Mm. Right? So, I mean, it exists for very good reason. I mean, we should say that up front. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with hunger. <laughs> no, and there's nothing wrong with the desire to to satiate that yeah. because that's how we survive, right? Like, so, but it's the fact that like, no one here or in the past is spruiking for starvation. That's not what's happening. Mm. But it's, it's the mere fact that it's so elemental that is what makes it dangerous and promiscuous, right? I mean, you, you could say a similar thing of the desire for sex, which is obviously also elemental because we are a sexually reproducing species. Our species simply doesn't survive without it. And yet, because of that, they're so powerful that they can go about, they can operate almost without restraint and then destroy not just us, but everything around us. They, they can destroy our relationships, they can destroy our societies, they can, and then in keeping with the theme of this particular series, they can destroy our souls, right? You quoted Al-Ghazali, that, that book, Kasra Shahwatin, the, the breaking of the two desires, they're the two desires that he's talking about there, right? Because they're the, they're the king desires, um, food and sex. And yet it seems that but what's been fascinating, I know you set this whole series up this way, what's fascinating is the level of consensus on this thing that seems to exist across moral traditions. Hmm. Different, slightly different emphases, I think, we would say. I know, and this is an observation that someone like uh, Abdul Hakim Murad makes, that the Islamic tradition is quite different in this respect from the Christian tradition, which was a much more self-denying sort of tradition, uh, and that Islamic versions of this have tended to be less like that. But then you read someone like Al-Ghazali and you go, he's pretty austere. Mm. I mean, <laughs> he's not, you know, he, he talks about the, the importance of experiencing hunger as a, as a way, as, as a, a crucial step on the path to experiencing God. Mm. And I don't know if you remember this part of the book where he breaks down the different habits of eating that you might do. And he says, there are those that are miraculous, you know, where they can, 
they can go 50 days without food or something like that. That's, that's extremely rare and this is a miraculous realm. And then there's that which is eminently achievable where you eat once every three days. And then if you look, if you're really, really weak, this is all my paraphrasing. <laughs> one meal really a day, really one meal a day. One meal a day yeah, and right. a small one, right? And so, you know, he's, he's very austere here, but then he later moves on to talk about reverting to the mean, that actually the, the point here is not simply to go without food. The point here, and, and to live an austere life, the point is to gain such mastery, or one of the points is to gain such mastery over that desire, such that whether you eat or not, whether you eat regularly or not, now becomes irrelevant to you. And at that point, you may eat. That, mm. That's kind of how he ends up setting it up. Right? And he talks about great spiritual masters who... They could eat at any time. It didn't really matter anymore because to them that desire had been somehow somehow conquered. But what's interesting about the way Al-Ghazali frames this, and I think Aquinas would be similar, right, is this relationship that exists between hunger and clarity, hmm. that actually once you become satiated, there's a certain animalistic aspect of you that takes over you become more complacent. I think, was it Aquinas who said something akin to once your full reason ceases to be in charge, mm, mm. right? That there is a certain sharpness and perhaps to pick up the point you were making, a certain attentiveness mm. that attaches to hunger, that makes it a morally laudable state because of what it inculcates in the human being. Can I, can I frame and, that a slightly different way? Sure. That physical hunger can be, I mean, it can be purely egocentric, of course. Yes, which is a warning that they, yes, it they is. also give. But right? physical yeah. hunger can be, in a virtuously cultivated state, physical hunger can be a parable for spiritual hunger mm. or, or, say, uh, a longing or a craving for that which is good or beautiful. In other words, the body at that point can resonate, can echo with the deepest longings for life's truest necessities. Whereas simply descending into a place of complacency, of satiation, of somnolescence, that can lead one to a state of all is well, I have all that I need, therefore, dot, dot, dot. And the conclusions you reach from there are... Almost all reprehensible conclusions. Yes, yes. Right? I am self-sufficient. I well, need nothing. I, I, I'm in need of nothing. I, I, or worse, um, or worse, I'm in need of more. And well, that's why, yes. that's why, again, yeah. I find it so interesting because this resonates deeply with Aristotle. This resonates mm. with Aquinas. That uh, Al-Ghazali sees the satiation of hunger, the immediate, I should say, satiation of hunger, with that which then tips over into envy and pride and acquisitiveness and desire for reputation and public regard and luxury. In other words, you deny, and let me just sort of put a little bit more Simone Veil into this. I've always found it fascinating. Well, they don't know how much we've talked about it on the show. I don't think we've done too much. But Simone Veil talks about this crucial moment in moral encounter. She describes it as the moment or the interval of hesitation where a person is standing before another person. The threat, the risk is to dominate, to demean, to betray, to possess. But the full moral regard, fully attending to the moral reality of this other person leads to, it's almost as if the other person exerts a kind of push, a kind of magnetic, not pull, but push away from us. And it's the maintaining of that interval of hesitation before this proper object of attentiveness. She even tips sometimes into the language of worship before the reverence that's due to this other human being. She says it's vital in moral encounter to maintain that moment, that interval of hesitation. And I can't help but feeling as if there's also something there that's going on in our regard for hunger. If we simply indulge unthinkingly, if we simply, I hunger, I eat, I want, I have, I need this, I press the button, one click, and I order it. Mm. If we simply collapse that interval, that moment where we are in a condition of 
hunger, of need, of uncertainty, if we forbid that from doing its proper work, which is, I think, the constraint of the ego, the limiting of the ego. This is your place. Stay in that moment and don't take the next step towards immediate consumption. That, I think, will lead us precisely what Simone Weil is getting at when she says that all of these things, vice, depravity, cruelty, they begin with eating that which is beautiful, with taking that which should cause us to stop, to be still, to wait, mm. and to collapse that distance and simply grab it. So was it Aquinas? I, I suspect it was. You can correct me if I'm wrong. When talking of, you know, the, the deadly sin of gluttony. Um, and I have to, I mean, this is not my tradition. I'm not mm. Catholic or anything, but I'm quite impressed by the seven deadly sins mm. formation in, within Catholicism and, and just the level of discussion about them. But one of the things that I think that Aquinas talks about is that it's not simply eating too much, but it's a whole attitude. It's, it's too frequently, it's too fine. That's right. And I wonder about, because we also, there are expressions of this in a kind of form of food fussiness, right? Mm. And I'm maybe so that's glad you brought this up. This is the next yeah, step. That's right. Maybe that's the point you're talking about there, that, that there is eating beautiful food in a way that has reverence for the food, right? Reverence for, well, to put it in religious terms, isn't this creation astonishing? That the world has has been created with all this in it, that these things can be brought out of it. Isn't that astonishing? That, that's one way of, but another way is of using that to reset your standards so it's such that, well, I'm not eating anything that's plain. I'm not, I'm not that, that's kind of below, below me, right? Not, that's different from saying I'm not eating something that's unhealthy because it will, you know, that's, that's doing an injustice upon my own body by forcing it to put up with, too much saturated fats or whatever, but like that there's, a, I have, I have a certain level now. And if that's not met on my plate, then I'm somehow affronted by this. That would be within Aquinas's formulation, a form of gluttony, even if you're not eating very much, right? The whole approach to food and its connection then to things to do with desire and self-regard becomes that that circle becomes completed that circuit becomes you're absolutely right. right you're absolutely right Waleed. and and i think this is this is the crucial final insight in this first kind of part of the conversation which is that the lust after food and the unthinking craving for whatever it is that can satisfy this particular desire for food there's something wrong with that the state of hunger where all one can think about is the next meal. There's something wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. The the condition of... Uh, the, there are some moral philosophers who I really do love. I really, really love who have been trying to elevate the aesthetic value of being a foodie. Yeah. That I find really suspicious on all sorts of different fronts. There's something about the preoccupation with food... And then the using of food as a moral identity marker, as if the food itself is somehow morally tainted and those who eat of that food are themselves morally impure. I mean, we both know, of course, that in various religious traditions, uh, there are foods that are regarded as impure, as unclean, as not lawful yeah. to eat, um, and therefore they are prescribed. Um, there's no, there's no eating them. And if you do, then you're somehow sort of outside of a moral or religious community. We are very, very, very close to doing the same thing now, such that if food that is not ethically overdetermined in a certain way, if that's not the food that's eaten, then a group of people becomes subject to, or the object of socially sanctioned ridicule and contempt. But would you say they're the ethic that determines that is hedonistic? rather than something else? Look, that, that I'm not sure, because I think pure hedonism, I only eat the finest. I mean, there, there, is, there is a kind of viciousness in, in that that I almost don't even want to entertain. It's the, I will only eat food that ticks the following ethical boxes. Uh, single source, locally uh, secured, 
preferably from this morning's markets, uh, never touched plastic, and so forth and so on. Using food with that kind of ethical overdetermination as a way of licensing a degree of ridicule and contempt towards some and of creating a condition of moral superiority for others, that, it seems to me, becomes another form, a different form, a slightly different, I mean, yes, a slightly different form of egocentrism, but a you form I, of quasi-ethical egocentrism all the same. Do you know what's really interesting about yeah, this part of the conversation is how fine the balances are? Yes, it is. Because there's That's something right. laudable in that approach to food as well. And I mean, well, it, I say this as someone who refuse. I, I mean, I'm vegetarian. It's very hard for me to be vegan because I live in a family and I do all the cooking in my family and I'm, I'm in a family of meat eaters. So it's very hard for me to sort of cut that out entirely. But I think very, very, very carefully about what it is that I eat. And there are certain things that I simply, simply, simply will not indulge in. But I think you're right. The, the, the fineness of the distinction between unthinkingly eating anything and having one's life determined by food that way mm. and hyper-ethically determining everything that one eats such that one is ethically obsessed with what one eats. There's something, there's something not quite right in that either. I think you're absolutely right that the fineness yeah, of the distinction there is vital. Because it's about the other things that get carried along with it, right? The, yeah. the, the other dispositions that get uh, fed or that get inculcated in that. So Al-Ghazali is interesting on that point, right? Because he talks about those people who are quite determined to experience hunger as part of their spiritual path, but want the world to know about yes. it. <laughs> And he but says the he damage uses the term ostentation, ostentation, yeah. hunger then leads to ostentation. Hunger a, as ostentation, it's right? Beautiful, it's and wonderful, that's fascinating, right? Because he says that those people are doing far more damage through their ostentation yes. than they would by satiating their hunger. Just to prove, and then he just tells to prove to you, Walid, that I read it. He says one flees the scorpion and takes up a boat with a viper. Yeah, that's <laughs> I love right. it. I love it. Yeah. So he tells really wonderful stories about people who would buy lots of food and put it up in their house <laughs> so that people would see that they had lots of food so they would assume that they're constantly eating even though they weren't because they wanted to guard against this notion of ostentation through. So it's finely calibrated, right? I mean, that runs through all these moral traditions is that that question of balance and exactly how it is to be struck. Yeah. Speaking of balance, I think we've overindulged on the first half of this show. We better get to the guest. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can catch the show as a podcast. So you can do that wherever you subscribe to podcasts, but also by listening to the ABC Listen app. Our guest is Alda Balthrop-Lewis. She's research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry, the Australian Catholic University. Anybody who's listening to this show, anyone who's listened to this show for a while knows the high regard that I have for Henry David Thoreau, who's about to come up quite prominently in this conversation. It just so happens that Alda has written one of the finest books on Thoreau's life and moral vision. It's called Thoreau's Religion, Walden Woods, Social Justice, and the Politics of Asceticism. Alda, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. So look, I've got no idea how it is that we're going to try to tease out these threads, but let me just begin at one point that I think resonates quite deeply with one of Thoreau's fundamental concerns. I, I used a few times the language of, of eating unthinkingly. And it does strike me, and certainly this was something that Thoreau identified powerfully, the extent to which uh, many who eat unthinkingly outsource the impurity of food preparation. Here he's thinking specifically of the slaughter of animals. Uh, they outsource the impure, uh, the corrupting dimensions of food preparation to others, such that what arrives on their plate can simply be enjoyed and they don't have to worry about where it comes from. There's a wonderful moment in Thoreau's chapter, Higher Laws, in his book, Walden, where he says, the task is for the body and the imagination to sit down at the same table and be able to eat together. In other words, for us to think clearly, lucidly about what it is that we eat, 
about the moral character of what we eat uh, and for that to be an essential part of the process of eating itself. Let's pick up on that point, how we ought to sort of think clearly, but not perhaps obsessively in the way that Waleed and I have been talking about, about what it is that we eat. Yeah, great. One of the things that that book you mentioned really insists upon that I think uh, you've started talking about is the dangers in practices of renunciation that they be kind of dour, which is to say that they fail at the thing they're aiming at by not actually appreciating the things of value that they're trying to reorient the self toward. So uh, maybe I can say that a little more clearly. Thoreau was driven, I think, to these kinds of um, practices of simple eating and simple living by a hunch that if he lived that way, he would enjoy his life more. Mm. And um, the last chapter of that book is about delight for this reason, because uh, what he found when he was living this way was that it, it made his life better. And I think it, what you've talked about, as you have just now, Scott, about his um, appeal to the imagination as part of this. He says also in that same chapter, like many of my contemporaries, I had rarely for many years used animal food or tea or coffee, etc. Not so much because of any ill effects, which I had traced to them, as because they were not agreeable to my imagination. Wow. So he's surrounded at the time by people who are um, uh, abolitionist reformers, really intent on uh, refusing tea and coffee, especially because of their association with the slave trade. And Thoreau is like them practicing that kind of renunciation for those political reasons. But he also seems to think that there's something more to it, that that he gives those things up in part um, because, because doing it makes his life better, enhances his capacity for imagination in some way. So it's not only good for the slave, it's also good for him. Hmm. Okay. This is, I'm so glad you did that because part of our condition, I think of unthinkingness uh, and, you know, for Thoreau to identify someone else does the slaughtering, someone else does the harvesting. I mean, you remember, of course, Emerson refusing sugar because he says the sugar we stir into our tea tastes of blood. The, the, Production of the food takes place someplace else. And as it arrives to us, it's aesthetically pleasing. So even if we don't want to go so far as the food simply arriving to us in restaurants, but just think about the film of clean, sterile, smellless plastic that covers most of what arrives on our supermarket shelves that we simply pick up. Everything about it is inviting, is urging a kind of aesthetic sterility the lack of threat, the lack of cost, the lack of cost, in other words, by those who bore the cost of the preparation of that food. And for our minds, the kind of harmlessness in simply picking it up and preparing what it is uh, that we're then going to eat. So part of the conditions of unthinkingness is we don't have to be involved in the production of food. We can simply be involved fairly harmlessly as long as I think increasingly a number of people I mean, I, I know very, very, very few people who with impunity will simply pick up cage eggs, for instance, or who don't go out of their way to look for humanely slaughtered or RSPCA approved meat, for instance. I don't think that goes far enough on either account, but there is at least th that kind of moral awakening that this food costs something and we ought to regard uh, the lives that have been given, the conditions in which that food has been prepared for. So there is that kind of there's a, an urging of a degree of unthinkingness. Thoreau went so far as to grow his own. I mean, my favorite chapter in the entire book is his description of his, his lovely bean field. Um, very few of us are in a position, it's almost romantic or nostalgic to think we could be in a position to fully own the costs of the preparation of our food. In, in other words, to do it ourselves. But how far in order for our imaginations to be fed and not just our bodies. How far should we allow the costs of the food that we eat to impress themselves upon us? How morally alert should we be, I suppose, 
in what it is that we eat. I'm, I don't know, maybe I want to take a step back okay. or, or something uh, from the, the conversation that you guys were having at the beginning. I notice the diagnosis of the ego as a central theme, meaning the the sort of moral thesis that humans have this uh, problem, which is a selfish ego. And that's a very popular view. I'm not sure what I think about it, but I I guess I'm interested in, in a frame for moral philosophy that is slow to diagnosis, which is to say that looks for, for examples of of what's good. So I know you love Iris Murdoch's God. So I was looking at the sovereignty of good. And there's this amazing moment where she writes, goodness appears both rare and hard to picture. And this is one of the things that's that makes diagnosis a really tempting thing to do, I think, in moral philosophy, because uh, picturing goodness is actually quite difficult. And following that sentence, she says, it is perhaps most convincingly met with, in simple people, she says, the example of this she gives is unselfish mothers of large families. Mm. And I guess when I think about the ethics of eating, the example that I often turn to for a good one is something like the unselfish mothers of large families who mm. um, have in so many cases fed so many of us with so much grace. And I, I'm... I guess I'm slow to diagnosis of the kind about the ego, the overreaching ego, because I've been the recipient of gifts like that from lots of unselfish people. I, I, don't, I don't know that the two actually sit in tension. I mean, yeah. the way that you've described that there, Alda, the thing about that mother, at least as I'm imagining her, is that Ego doesn't really seem to form part of the imperative for her behaviour. Um, to return to the theme of attentiveness, she's attentive to so many, and to their needs and probably to every subtle sign that points to those needs. Um, so it's not that every human being is egotistical or um, that every human being's conquered by their ego but it's that this is something that human beings have to wrestle with and that there are some people in some circumstances who they become saintly in a way because they they have kept that in check. They've managed to manifest the good in a way. But the point is that the ego can't be present where the good is being manifested. That's, mm. which is a, you know, on one hand, that seems an obvious thing to say. On the other, it's a really radical thing to say now sort of environment, which is built on the canons of capitalism, this idea that individual want and um, egotistical competition and so on is to the overall benefit of people. Um, it, it, that stands really facing in the opposite direction of just about every other moral tradition. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not an insignificant point. I'm not compelling you to accept the, the ego analysis, by the way. I'm, I'm just merely saying I don't think... There's anything in it that sits at odds with what, with what you're saying there. No, sure, no, yeah. but it's also can, can it, it's uh, sorry. It's also a vital point that you brought, and I'm I'm so glad that you raised. It's one of my. It's one of the most important passages in Sovereignty of Good to me. That particular image, and I think what it actually does, is it signifies that simply thinking about food as an object that we consume, rather than a gift that is given, uh, which of course has a very very powerful role. It's a powerful picture in many religious as well as moral traditions. Um, I think there's something about that when we think, simply think about food as that which we acquire and we take and then we feel sort of morally superior or morally inferior about. The idea that food is oftentimes and in many ways and in crucial respects sanctified through the very act of its preparation and its generous giving um, as a way of instantiating, embodying uh, the bond between us and creating the conditions. I mean, I, I've talked before about that interval of attentiveness or that interval of hesitation. Is there any more wonderful way of filling that interval, of marking it, if you like, than filling it with an act of extraordinary generosity in the form of a lovingly 
attentively prepared dish. So I think right, that, and, uh, and then at that point, at that point, Scott, there is no real room. I don't think. I mean, maybe there is, but I don't think there's room for the moral response to be to someone who is served that food to say, "Sorry, I'm embracing hunger." Yes, longer. I think that's right. right. Or, or I'm a vegetarian. Well, okay, possibly. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how far you take that. Would you compel the Jew or the Muslim to eat pork in that situation? I mean, they couldn't. Well, yeah. Anyway, but this does take There's me... all kinds of hospitality that happens before you plan the menu. Yes, that's right. right. Exactly right. <laughs> that's, that's probably right. right. Um, yeah, but the idea of being a generous host is... Uh, it's almost something that sits outside of this conversation, in a way, or outside of the conversation about hunger, generally. But it does raise one thing that I really wanted to get your thoughts on, Alda, and that is... Do you know what? I'll do it after this. Um, you're listening to The Mindfield if you've just joined us. Well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. Our guest today is Elder Balthorpe Lewis, who's research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University. So, Aldo, you've delivered us really neatly to something I really wanted to ask you about, which is feasting. What yeah, do you the, think the of one feasting. The one thing I wanted to say, which I was I was struck by something you said at the beginning. The sort of talking point I came into today with was there is no fast without a feast. Mm. Um, but then what you said at the beginning was was striking to me. You said you said people think of fasts as the time that we starve ourselves between shoving food in our faces. Mm. And, and I wonder, I wanted to talk to you about that too, <laughs> um, because I wonder what's different between that image of fasting and feasting. And the one I came in today with was a, a kind of understanding of them both together as patterns of life that can make food beautiful and meaningful in our lives, that, that they belong together in some essential way. And we can't talk about the one without the other. Yeah, I don't know that I would disagree with you about that point. I think maybe there's one really obvious difference, which is one of regularity. So the people who, and this happens every Ramadan, people will ask me this sort of question about, like, how much do you eat at night, right? Because, <laughs> but there you're talking about a, a daily process, right? And this imagined daily process of gorging in in order to, you don't know, store up enough fat for the hibernation or something that you're about to embark upon. I feel like that's a very different thing to what happens at the end of the whole month. Mm. And what you get at the end of the month is the the day of Eid. And Eid in Arabic has several meanings, but one of them is feast, right? But I feel like, and maybe I, I turn to you to put, to help me put my finger on it, Elder, but there is something qualitatively different about that moment, mm. which is a moment of coming together and it's a moment of celebration, also reflection on what you've just done and the changes that it's made in you and the changes that it will carry henceforth. But the feast is not normative, is it? It's not, it's not, it doesn't set the template for what must happen every day. It's... It's very meaning in his, in its exceptionalism. Yeah. And in that it's serving some kind of social function. I think it embodies gratitude hmm. or something in a way hmm. that, that gorging doesn't. Gorging, sure. gorging um, embodies entitlement or something or just base desire. Feasting is a slightly different thing. The fasting and feasting traditions that I'm most familiar with are Christian ones where we don't exactly fast in the weekdays, but we feast in the Sundays. And especially in monastic contexts where I've spent time, the distinction is between very plain meals on the weekdays and mm -hmm. just somewhat more elaborate meals on Sunday and, and somehow the Sunday meal, even if all that's extra is a piece of ham or a glass of wine, um, the, 
the fact that we didn't eat those through the week makes them meaningful in a new way every every time. And I do find that really beautiful. I mean, it strikes me as an incredible feature of, um, I don't know, life together that that we can create those kind of patterns that that bring us again and again and again back to to um, what's beautiful and and things we might otherwise take for granted. Yeah, and I think that's echoed though in in some of the traditions surrounding Eid. So particularly the the bigger or the major Eid, which is at the, around the time of the pilgrimage Eid al-Adha, which commemorates the story of Abraham and his son and the sacrifice and so on. But the great tradition that surrounds that is the tradition of the sacrifice. So, and I, I got to experience this properly once, I reckon, when I happened to spend that Eid in Egypt with my family, uh, my extended family, and they live um, where they're, they're from is like a little country town of about 3 million people outside of Cairo. And we went out to that house and they bought a cow for that and they slaughtered the cow and then mm. they take the meat and they distribute the meat amongst the poor. Mm. And there's something really amazing in that tradition because the fact that it's meat especially, because meat is luxurious. Mm-hmm. And when you observe it in that way and you practice it in that way, what you see is people who spend their whole lives not being able to eat something like meat. They just wouldn't. It's not like us where we might have three meals of meat a, a day, right? We might do that in our society. Clearly not Scott, but, you know, a lot of people <laughs> would do that. Um, but to disseminate something like that among people for whom this they just never get this. Mm. And that commemorates this as a special day. That's the feast for them, right? That's mm. That's what that is. I think there's something deeply nurturing in that that makes it so, I think is a little bit similar to what you're talking about there. Um, For sure. And to have traditions where our bodies, I mean, where our bodies are integrated into our prayer in that way. Even, I mean, I guess there, I've been thinking as we've been talking some about family members of mine who are not religious in any way, but their children wanted to find something to do when they sat down to eat dinner together. They didn't, they didn't like just eating. They, they, I was thinking about this, Scott, when you were talking about the pause, the, the moment between. And, and so in this family, they have this book of, of prayers before meals and it's kind of a, I don't know, a gift book, you know, sort of a variety of spiritual traditions and maybe some poems by I don't know, E.E. E. Cummings. Um, but the children take turns choosing one of these to, to say before their meal because they want to mark the moment in that way. They want to they want to take the pause in order to remember what they're doing. And I, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful theologian who I know. He's a dear friend named Norman Wiersba, uh, who's talked and written at some length with great eloquence about the importance of what he calls saying grace as a political act, namely marking that moment of hesitation, uh, remarking the sacrifice that's been made, the cost that is being born, and this that we are about to receive as being ultimately gift. Can I, can I raise just a little something? might sound very weird, and if you both just want to bat it away, I'm happy for you to do so. But um, this is kind of where I live uh, well, on last week's show, you brought up the uh, visual versions of Lord of the Rings. Um, there was something as I was thinking about it this morning that kind of came to mind. The Ring of Power, of course, affects everyone in the realm of Middle Earth. Some lust after it. Some are terrified of it, but nobody is unaffected by it, except for a strange forest hermit named Thomas Bombadil, who sees the ring as a trinket, a little toy uh, that he kind of flicks around and does a little magic trick in his hand before returning it to Frodo. It strikes me that increasingly our relationship to food is much the same. Some lust after it, uh, unthinkingly perhaps, 
Some are terrified of its either uh, moral taint or its uh, consequences for our health, and therefore, in another way, kind of obsess about it. But everybody is affected by it. Um, I'm in a strange position where, so I I mentioned before, I I do all the cooking in my family, and we practice a great deal of hospitality. We cook a great deal for other people. And I see cooking and the preparation of uh, generous meals, one of the ways that I show my love to my family and to other people. I hate eating. Um, If there was a pill that I could take that gave me everything that I needed and I never had to sit down at a meal again, I would be incredibly happy. Um, So I realized that my my perspective is a little bit jaundiced. I should also say that my family has struggled with the experience of one of my children enduring uh, anorexia nervosa. Uh, And so you never quite look at food and nutrition the same way. Again, and the drama of mealtimes never sort of takes... So, so, you know, there there might be just a bit of sort of pain that's associated with that. But I'm wondering about, quite apart from meal as gift and the sharing of meal as grace, how do we comport ourselves towards food such that it is what it is, namely as Aquinas and as Al-Ghazali said, the fuel that we need in order to be able to worship rightly. How do we comport ourselves well towards food? But in the same manner that, say, Thomas Bombadil does towards the ring of power. It's something that I require, but I neither lust after it, nor am I terrified of it. How can we maintain that relationship towards food as gift to others, but without it becoming the thing that, if you like, dominates either our culinary or our ethical consciousness? I mean, that strikes me as a really, really hard question that everyone, as you say, is facing in their lives in a different way. And I guess it's one of the reasons that for me, um, these resources about good examples are what I try to draw on because I don't know what else to do. You know, I, I, um, I try to remember the parties that my grandmother threw that were like water in a beautiful glass garnished with mint and strawberries served on seashells. And and somehow she made those very um, rudimentary materials precious, um, but not fussy. And so when I'm struggling with those kinds of questions, I I think about those parties and and what they meant to me and how much they uh, saved me from the struggles that I was having in those moments. I don't know. It seems like it's just really hard. Mm. If I knew the answer to that, I'd have a million dollars. I have the perfect answer, Scott, but we're out of time, so I'm afraid I can't do it to you. <laughs> Alda, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. No, the pleasure has been all ours. And uh, it's a fitting way, I think, for us to, to round out the Ramadan series. Aldo Balthorpe-Lewis, Research Fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield and for this final episode of the Ramadan series. It's now at an end. Normal programming resumes, whatever that means in the context of The Minefield. I really don't know what it means, but it'll happen uh, from next week. Thank you very much for being on this journey with us, and we'll see you soon. Podcast extra will lead. Do you want to enlighten us? Oh, really? You're going to turn this into a habit? <laughs> no. But come on. Come on. You got something. You got something. I can feel it. I don't know that I do, really. I don't, I'm not of much use to you because I don't think I understand the complexity of the question. So to me, there's something inherent in this gesture of the gift and the hospitality that is independent of the content of it. So I don't quite see the tension you're wrestling with. Hmm. I, I heard Scott asking, in, in the culture I live in, um, there's both compulsive eating and uh, there's compulsive eating of all kinds. Scott seemed to be asking, like, what can, how do I live in that? How That's do I, exactly how do right. I live in a culture where everyone 
is just trying not to be a compulsive eater in some way. I mean, if I had fresh vegetables, brown rice and black beans and water, well, this is actually part of my fantasy of basically having five pairs of blue jeans and five black shirts. Uh, so you don't have to, yeah. That I don't have to, so I don't have to think well, about dressing if, either. If that's, if that's what you ate, Al-Ghazali would regard you as indulgent. Yes, it's true. <laughs> Why do you hate eating, Scott? Probably because I have to cook it. Right. No, but yeah, we've had you over for food. Oh, no, sorry. What I'm saying, it's a task. Not, not eating isn't, though. No, no, so, sorry. Food preparation is a task that I do for others. And but not always, right? Like, it, it's obvious. I know because I've taken you out for dinner and stuff. Yeah. But there are times where that's not what happens. Oh, no. That's true. Do you, that's true. Do you enjoy that food? The company is wonderful, Waleed. So you don't, you don't the food enjoy eating. I no, feel like I we just need don't. to help Scott. <laughs> do you know what, though? Can I say that I was listening to a discussion on gluttony, actually, between, I think it was two Catholic academics, it might even be theologians or philosophers, I'm not sure, and one Muslim Islamic scholar. And one of the, I can't remember who made the observation. It was a fascinating observation. They said, now when we give someone food, what do we say to them? We hmm. say, enjoy. Hmm. Interesting. Which is odd because we, that's not actually... Humans have never really said that. They've said things like, you know, in Arabic is the expression, like, you know, have it in good health. Mm. Or some variant of that. Like that's been the the focus on it. Like the the, the idea of saying grace, Ver- versions of that exist in probably every religious tradition. Mm. And the point there is to reorientate yourself from the food to the one who provided it. Mm. That is, there is something bigger at play in all of those sort of traditions than the current practice, which is, here's food, enjoy it. So maybe maybe Scott's just on a more virtuous plane than oh, us. Oh, good heavens. Harder. That's and definitely that's, not the case. Yeah. That's what yeah. it comes down to. No, but I, uh, I think, I mean, what you say there, Willie, that's fascinating. Because, I mean, the other thing, of course, is food and food consumption as a kind of, as a hobby as something that is enjoyed as such. Um, I don't just mean sort of, you know, gorging, but but the consumption and the seeking out of rare or very precisely sourced delicacies. Or now that there is food abundance uh, undergoing the process whereby we try increasingly to restrict the type of foods uh, or to seek yeah. out the most restricted forms of food or the most limited. Or the most exclusive. Or the yeah. most exclusive. So I think there's... But, so at the same time as that, so I, I recognize exactly how you would characterize that as a moral problem. Well, no, I mean, that, there is, that is food as end rather than food as means, which I just... not necessarily, right? So th- this is the point I guess I was making before about I think it's possible to have a version of that, which is doing that out of a, a kind of appreciation and awe hmm. for what's around. That I can see. That I can see. Right. So yeah. I, I find the cuisines of the world amazing because I think about just how much effort how much trial and error, how much knowledge, how much wisdom, how much discovery has gone into perfecting this so that a whole culture goes, this is how you do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is how you get that ingredient and this is what you do with it. And this, like, Aldo, this and, is why Waleed loves English food so much. No, so you know, I must have told you I have, a, I have an idea for a documentary on this, right? Have I told you this? Yes, yeah. 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 The, the English are one of the few cultures that just don't seem to have done this. Right? Like if you compare, you can Alba, get good food this in is England. this is Waleed's hypothesis for co- for colonization. Colonialism happened because they needed better food. Yeah. yeah, the English were in search of a good meal and naturally wound up in India. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Oh, well, I haven't heard a better theory. But I feel like there's something about enjoyment, like the the for me. It, it, like in the way I think about piety, like you, you can't do the piety without the enjoyment. Like mm, the true. enjoyment yeah, is a yeah. practice that that actually is. Di- Grace doesn't redirect you from the food to where it came from. Grace helps you remember that when you eat the food, you are enjoying the gift and the fact that it came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. 
Beautifully put. Yeah. Well, sadly, Alda, we've got to do boring things now. I really appreciate uh, getting to talk to you. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. This is great. Thanks so much, Alda. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.